Well, last week you will remember that I gave all of you a pop quiz on what is the theme of Paul's two letters to the believers in Thessalonica. First and second Thessalonians have a common theme to which Paul continues to return. And last week I asked you what that was and asked you to shout it out and only two people did. So I'm not sure if only two people knew or if you were a little afraid to shout it out. But I just need to tell you, I'm going to give you the quiz every Sunday until we get it right, okay? So pop quiz again today. Can you tell me what is the recurring theme that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers about? He was telling them what that... There you go. You got it. That Jesus is coming again. And we believe that, don't we? We believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not only do we believe that Jesus is coming again, we believe, and with good reason we believe, that we may be living in the days just before he returns. That we may be living in the last of the last days. You know, when you think about the hallmarks of the last days, what are the evidences that might uh, indicate to us that in fact Jesus could be coming soon? There are many of them. We could uh, consider what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about the fact that there would be in the last days wars and rumors of wars. And we would look at our world today and say, well, certainly, uh, while that's true in many ages, it is true in a deeply significant global kind of threatening way in our days. And when you company, along with the fact that there are wars and rumors of wars, when you put alongside that, what the Bible says about the alignment of nations in the last days and the coalitions of nations that will form and you step back and you watch those nation alignments and coalitions happening, you say, wow, we, we, could, be, we could be seeing these things come to pass. When you consider that the Bible says that in the last days that there would be an ingathering of the Jewish people into their homeland, that they had been scattered for thousands of years, but in the last days he would bring them from the four corners of the earth. And surely we've seen that happen over the last century and a half with the rise of Zionism in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century, God began to gather his children home. We're seeing the fulfillment of that. And now, not only is there this spirit of Zionism where the Jewish people want to come home, I mean, as I mentioned, that's already happening, but now there's a new Zionism rising in Israel itself, in Jerusalem, and that's the desire of the recently returned Jewish people now longing to build their temple in Jerusalem and see a status change on the Temple Mount. That is deeply prophetic that we might be living in the last days. So when you think about wars and rumors of wars and the alignment of nations and coalition of forces, when you think about the ingathering of the Jews and the desire to rebuild the temple, all of these things and many other prophetic signs, as you consider those things, you should not forget to pay attention to one of the most clear prophetic indicators that is happening today. And that is the fact that the Bible says that in the days before the return of Jesus, that there would be a diminishing of, really I would say an evaporation of, pure, godly love. The Bible says that the last days will be marked 
by the absence of love. I want to show you this. I asked you to turn last week to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to ask you to do it again today, if you will. Just turn a few pages forward. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me remind you of what Paul says about these last days. Look at verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Stop right there. Not every kind of love is going to evaporate in the last days. There is one particular kind of love that is going to increase in the last days. And that is according to verse number two, love for self. That men, that people will begin to love themselves And in fact, there is a direct correlation, isn't there, between the degree to which I love myself and then the degree to which my love for others is diminished. Because I'm so in love with myself that I have a difficult time caring about anybody but myself. He says, in the last days, love will diminish except for this love, love for self. He says in verse number two, men will be lovers of their own selves. They will be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. That's a lack of love for parents, disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy. That's a lack of love for God, unthankful and unholy. Verse number three, in the last days, people will be without natural affection. Think about that, without natural affection. Here's what it means. It means that the normal, the normal kind of affection that you would see people having for those that they should love, their hearts will begin to grow hard toward those people and they won't love them like you would naturally expect that they would love them. Listen carefully. It is unnatural. It is not normal for grandmothers to stand on a street corner or on the steps of the Supreme Court with a placard screaming that women ought to have the right to kill children. That's not normal for grandmothers. Now, it might be something you would expect from some you know, young progressive ideologue, but not from a mother who has raised her own children and a grandmother who has watched her own grandchildren be born into this world. It is unnatural. It's not natural affection. He says that there will be this lack of love for parents. There will be this lack of love for God. There will be this lack of natural affection that should be present. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 12 that in the last days, because lawlessness will be increasing, that the love of many will grow cold. I think you would agree with me when you consider how the normal, natural, right, godly love ought to be uh, uh, seen, it is rather evaporating. We are living, I'm convinced, in the last days as evidenced by this and many other things. Now let me ask you a question. If the distinguishing mark of the godless in the last days is the absence of love, 
then what should be the distinguishing characteristic of the godly in the last days? Can I ask it again? A different way? If the world lacks love in the last days, what is it that would set the church apart from the world and cause the church to shine in an unloving world more than anything else? It's love, absolutely. The answer is love. And this is exactly what Paul is teaching to these Thessalonians in, second, or in 1 Thessalonians chapter number three and as well in chapter number four. Here's the, the big idea for today. This is the principle I want you to walk out of here with today and we're gonna see it in the passage. It is that while we wait for Jesus to return, in the waiting, while we wait for Jesus to return, we must learn to love like never before. While we wait for Jesus to return, we must love, learn to love like never before. Let me read this to you. I'm back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 5. You follow along. Paul writes, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know about your faith, lest by some means the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor among you had been in vain. But now, when Timothy came from you to us, and brought unto us the good tidings or good news of your faith and love, faith and charity, and that you have a good remembrance of us always, and that you desire greatly to see us, as we desire also to see you. Therefore, brothers, we were comforted by this. We were comforted over you in all of our affliction and distress. We were comforted by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God? Or what, how can we thank God enough for you? For all the joy wherewith we rejoice for your sakes before God. Night and day, verse 10 says, we pray for you. We pray exceedingly that we might see your face. And that we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, now may, the God, may God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we abound in love toward you. To the end, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Skip down to chapter 4 and verse number 9, please. Chapter 4, verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do it. You show love toward all the brethren which are in all of Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you would increase in love more and more. I want you to take a pen if you have one, and I'm going to ask you to mark in your Bible five times in this passage where Paul challenges these Thessalonian believers about their love for others. Five times he mentions to them about the importance of love. Begin in chapter number three and verse six and circle where he speaks of faith and love. 
Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says faith and charity. A more modern translation will say faith and love. But circle that. He mentions faith and love. And again, in chapter 5, and we didn't read chapter 5, but look at chapter 5 and verse number 8. You'll see the exact same phrase where he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. So he talks in this passage about these two attendant virtues, faith in Christ and the love of God shining through our lives. He says that when we walk in faith, then there is love that is present there as well. These, these virtues attend to one another. Then in chapter 3 and verse number 12, circle, where he commands them to grow and increase in love for one another. He says, I want you to abound in love one toward another and toward all men. Now in that verse, he's talking about the nature of love and how that love is to grow. It's to expand or to increase. And then in chapter 4 and verse number 9, he talks to us about um, brotherly love, the kind of love. Do you see it in chapter 4, verse number 9? But touching brotherly love, you are to love one another. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says we are to love all men. So in those verses, he's talking about the objects of our love, the attending virtues of faith and love, the expanding nature of love, and then the objects or who it is that we are to love. So let's begin with this last one that I've mentioned, who it is that we are to love. Write this down in your notes. Paul talks to us about the breadth of Christian love. The breadth of Christian love. That is, how wide should Christian love uh, extend? Now, by the way, you know that I love to, to give you definitions because whenever I'm using a word, I want to make sure you're thinking of that word the same way that I am and we're all singing on the same song sheet. So when we talk about or when Paul challenges us about Christian love, what's he talking about? What does it mean to express Christian love? It's not just being nice, right? Because there are a lot of people who aren't even Christians who are nice people. He's not just talking about being a, a nice person, but when he commands us to express Christian love, he's commanding us to take the love that we have received from God and then to give that away. So it is, it is an expression of the love that we have received from Christ, which by the way means that a non-believer cannot express Christian love because they haven't yet learned what it means to be loved by God. And so we receive the love of Jesus and then we give that love away. It's sacrificial love. It's redemptive love. It's restorative love. It's love that wants to reconcile and bring healing. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6, where he says, this is what the love of God is like. Love is patient and it's kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And so when you think about those descriptors, love that is patient and kind, it's humble. It doesn't hold a grudge. It esteems others better than itself. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it always rejoices in what is right and true. That's the kind of love that we're being challenged to give away. It's interesting, you know, Paul's not just preaching this, but Paul's living it. I mean, when you read through what he wrote to his friends here, it's dripping with this kind of love. 
In fact, look at it again, chapter number three and verse number five, where he talks to them about how he, he loved them so much he had to know how they were faring. Verse number five, for this cause when I could no longer forbear, I couldn't stand it. I needed to know how you were doing in your faith walk. So I sent Timothy to find out. I wanted to make sure the tempter hadn't led you astray. Verse number six, Timothy came back and he told me about your faith and about your love and how you remember our time together and you want to see me again just like I want to see you again. And he says in verse number seven, so I was comforted by that. He cares about them deeply and he wants to know how they're doing. In fact, he says in verse number eight, for now we live if you stand in the Lord, if you stand fast in the Lord. By the way, do you know this is every parent's desire for our adult children? Right? When our kids become adolescents or teenagers and they start owning their faith or they become adults and we want them to live out what we gave them as children and there is no greater joy in the life of a parent than to see their son or daughter living out their faith in significant ways, owning their faith. Paul was like a father to these people. Verse number eight, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Verse number nine, we thank God for how you are living out your faith. And then look at verse number 10. He says, we pray for you day and night. He cared for them. He wanted to see them. He was praying over them. Look at verse number 10. We want to see you so that we can perfect that is, lack, that, that is lacking in your faith. That is, we want to help you grow in your faith. He wanted to disciple them. Do you think that when the people in Thessalonica got this letter from the great apostle Paul and he's expressing such love and concern and devotion and prayers and wanting to disciple them, do you think they went, man, he loves us? Of course they did. They felt his love. And here's what I wonder. I wonder how many people feel that kind of love from me. And I wonder how many people feel that kind of love from you. Because here's the truth. So often, our love is motivated by what that person can bring to us. We love in a degree equal to which we are being loved. And rather than being a commitment and the love of God coming through our lives to them, our love is a repayment, a response for someone else's love for us. I want to be like Paul where the people that are around me would just know that they are loved. But here's the question, how widely, what's the breadth of that love? How widely should it be distributed? You know, it's true of me and it's probably true of you as well. It is that we tend to love in a pretty narrow scope. The people who are loved like this by us, it's usually a pretty small slice of the people that are actually in our lives. He, notice he says this in verse number 12, chapter three. He says that we are to love one another, but here's the thing. We ought to love one another, but we ought to ask the Holy Spirit to broaden the scope of our love. So that we're not just loving like this, but we're loving a broader scope. Beginning, of course, verse 12, with those who are the nearest to us. Love one another. You see at verse 12, may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another. Let me ask you, who are your one another's? Who are your closest one another's that you love this way? Well, it begins with our family, right? I mean, it would begin with those people that are closest to us. 
We would love our, we, we, we love our spouse. You know, I love Tracy. That's easy for me. It's very easy for me to love Tracy. It's really easy for her to love me. I'm just super easy for her to love me, I'm sure. But our love begins very narrowly. It's just in that, maybe that closest relationship. And then it spreads out to our children, our grandchildren. We love our, our close family. And then, and then certainly our extended family beyond that, we want to love them rightly. And then that would extend to our church family, I would, I would hope. Certainly we love our church family, our small group, and our faith family. And then we ought to love the, our brothers and sisters around the world. You know, people that we don't necessarily know, but they're our spiritual family, and we love them. And here's the thing. Generally speaking, it's pretty easy to love all those people, isn't it? Now, can we get honest? It's not easy to love all those people. <laughs> there are some people in the family of God, and even in our own families, that are just hard to love. Can I get a witness? I mean, they are. They're EGRs, extra grace required to love them. Okay, that's true. But generally speaking, these people in our narrow one another slice are easy to love. Why? They're like us. They value what we value. They think the way we think. They see the world the way that we see the world. They celebrate what we celebrate. They're very much like us. So loving them is not that difficult to do. But is that as broad as my love should extend? Should it just be this? Or do I need for the Holy Spirit to open my, my love scope wider? Look at verse 12 again. I am praying that your love will increase and abound toward one another and toward all men. Here's what it means, love all people. What Paul says is, is that in these last days, we need to love not only one another, but we need to love all people. Now, who are all people? All people that agree with us? <laughs> That's all people. He means that we need to love people who don't think like we think. And we need to love people who don't see the world like we see the world. And that we need to love people who don't share our values and who don't move in the circles that we move in. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> I know you're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, are you saying that I'm supposed to love those pro-choice, row-supporting, sign-waving Screaming people who, who stand for everything that I am against? Am I supposed to love them? Oh, welcome to church this Sunday morning. Yeah, we are. In fact, why don't you hold your finger in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says it there, but uh, he's not the only one that says it. Go to Luke chapter 6. And as soon as you get to Luke chapter 6, you're going to see that the words are in red. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, it means that Jesus said this. Jesus told us to love those people. Luke chapter 6, verse number 27, Jesus says, But I say unto you, uh, I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Skip to verse 32. 
For if you love them that love you, here's a modern translation, Jesus says, so what? If you love them that love you, big deal. He goes on to say, for even sinners love those that love them. Verse 33, if you do good to them which do good to you, what's, what good is that? Sinners do the same thing. And if you lend to them whom you hope to receive from, what good is that? Sinners also lend to sinners and receive as much again. Verse 35, Jesus Christ says, but you love your enemies and you do good to them. Hoping for no, lend to them and hoping for nothing again. And if you will, your reward shall be great and you shall be the children of the highest. That is, you shall look like your father. And what does he look like? Look at the end of verse number 35. Don't miss it. Underline it. Never forget it. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Wow. So let me personalize it. What are you going to do tomorrow when you walk into your office or you walk into that bank or you go into this classroom where you're at or you walk into the, onto the job site or whatever, when you walk tomorrow into your place of interacting with this world and there she is, or there he is, and they are angry about the Supreme Court decision and they are spouting all of the things that you disagree with and they are standing against everything that you value how are you going to love that person? Well, let me suggest some ways that you can. First of all, I think what the Lord would say to us is that if we're going to love them, we should remain patient and be kind to them. Remain patient and be kind. You know, this is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 when it describes to us what the love of God is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Number two, you should speak the truth to them, but you should do it in love. Loving is not backing away from the truth, but loving is standing on what is true and doing so in love. Speaking with kindness, speaking with compassion, speaking with patience as we hold forth what is true. Speak the truth in love. Number three, you should pray for the Spirit to open their eyes because here's the thing. 2 Corinthians 4 says that their eyes have been blinded by Satan. You say, I don't know how some people can believe such things. I'll tell you how they can believe it. They're blinded by Satan. And that's the reason rather than trying to argue them into another point of view, you should pray for them that the Holy Spirit will remove the blinders and they'll be able to understand what is true. Remain patient and be kind. Speak the truth. Don't waver one inch from what is true. You stand on the word of God, but you do it with tenderness and compassion and with love. Number three, you pray for them. And number four, you share the gospel with them. Because what will change them and make them a one another to you? It will be the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you should witness to them. Friday night, Tracy and I, after a Summer Splash uh, closing night ended, uh, we decided to drive uptown. And so we knew that there would be protests happening uptown. And, and so, you know, I'm not going to lie, quite honestly, we just went to check it out. We just drove up there to see what was happening. I wish I had a more spiritual reason, but that was it. <laughs> we just drove up to check it out. We did. We drove all around, saw the march happening, hundreds and hundreds of people 
marching through the streets, chanting, we don't care if people die. We saw all of this, and we made a loop around the, the uh, city center, and we, we were driving up the hill to where we knew they would be gathered, standing there, holding their signs. And I said to Tracy, I bet you anything, y'all know Randy Shepard. Randy's a part of our church, head of Crossfire. I said to Tracy, I bet you anything, Randy is right in the middle of them, sharing the gospel. I had said that 30 seconds. We rolled up to the traffic light, and there he was, standing there holding a big yellow sign that said, Jesus saves. And, t- and I said, I want to be him when I grow up. I do. I want to be like him. And so rather than getting out and helping him, I took his picture. <laughs> Bless him, Lord. But listen, listen, that's how we love. We're kind. We're patient. We speak the truth in love. We pray and we share. And that is demonstrating the love of God. Well, back in 1 Thessalonians, just as we get ready to close and have our baptism, some of you may be like me, and you're probably saying, oh, me, this morning more than you're saying, amen. But how can we, how can we do better in this? How can we grow in this? Well, Paul talks to us about growing in Christian love. You may say, well, I'm, I'm trying I'm loving the people that's easy to love, and I'm trying to love the people that it's more difficult to love. I really am trying. Well, the Thessalonians were trying too. These believers in Thessalonica were trying, and in fact, they were doing well. Look at chapter 3, verse number 6. He says, Timothy came from you to me and told us about your faith and your love. You're doing this, he said. Look at chapter 4, verse number 10. He says, I want you to increase in love, but you're doing it. You're loving all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you would increase more and more. That you will grow exceedingly in your love, that your love will abound and overflow out of your life, and that you will love more in the future than you've loved in the past. So he says that our love should grow. How can it happen? Let me suggest two ways that he mentions in this passage. One is he says if you want to grow in Christian love, you should follow in God's footsteps. It's a simple truth. But let me tell you what he means. Look at it with me in verse number uh, 10, chapter 4 and verse number, or verse 9. He says, but as touching brotherly love, I don't even need to write unto you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He said, I don't even need to tell you this. God's already shown you this. Well, when did God show them this? Do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans 5 and verse number 8? When he said, but God has demonstrated his love toward us in this, in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Do you know when Christ loved you and showed his love for you and died for you? Not when you were a nice, conservative, Bible-believing Christian sitting in church on Sunday morning. But when you were a rebel and a sinner and lost and headed to hell. He loved you. And so his love for me ought to be my example of how to love others. That means that I don't have to wait for people to get better to come to see things my way before I love them. I need to love them where they are now. Following his footsteps. Number two, we need to walk in the spirit. Are you like me? When you see some of the things that we see happening in our world, we, I watch the news or I hear some of these things that people espouse, or I read a particular tweet or post, 
Do you, like me, do you respond sometimes in the flesh? Help you preach your out. Do you respond in the flesh sometimes? Do, do you just start going, I'm, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to give them what for. And you're just tweeting and texting, or not texting, but posting. I've learned if I'm, if I'm tweeting mad, I have to show it to Tracy before I'm allowed to post it. <laughs> it's true. And if you say, well, I've never seen a mad post from you, thank the Holy Spirit and Tracy. Because <laughs> they have been produced. They just haven't been posted. We do that, right? We respond in the flesh. We get angry. We get frustrated. Righteous indignation rises up. But here's the thing. If we will walk in the Spirit, then what comes out of us will be love. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. How can I grow in love, follow God's footsteps, and walk in the Spirit? And the last thing I would just say to you before we finish is just to say, well, why? Because some of you may be like, well, why would I do that? Because I'm so angry at where those people stand and I'm so opposed to what they believe. Why would I want to love them? The answer to your why is found in chapter number four, or chapter three rather, in verse 13, where he tells us what is the product of genuine Christian love. Verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end, for this purpose, so that he, God, may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. He says that when we walk in the Spirit and we follow God's example and we love people like Christ has loved us, then that love produces within us a greater and greater and increasing holiness. So that when we stand before Jesus, we will stand there firmly established, blameless, because we lived a life by his spirit in the power of his love. I promise you, when you stand before Jesus on the day that he comes and takes us to heaven, he will not be interested in how many cute, witty, point-making tweets you tweeted or how many arguments you won, he will be interested in how you took his love and you gave it away to a dying world. And your greatest testimony, your greatest testimony is your love. John 13, 35, most of you remember it. Jesus said to his disciples, on the night before, I mean, imagine the context of this statement. On the night before they would take Christ and arrest him and and take him to be crucified, and his disciples would scurry and scatter in fear, driven away from him and each other. He said to them that night, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, because you love. <laughs>